perhaps in your life you have received a, um, a treasure from your family that's been passed down from generation to generation, whether it's a, a keepsake, um, something of historical value, perhaps even something of, of financial value. In these times in which we live, when very few things seem to have a weight of permanence to them, these are often reminders of a time long gone uh, when things uh, had real weight and significance and value. And then there's other stuff too that's just silly, but it makes you smile. I've given some thought to what is it in the Ridenauer family line that we would pass on from, our, from us to our children and hopefully on down. And I think I know what it is. There's a magnet that hung on my parents' refrigerator for years with this simple reminder on it. Ask your children while they still know everything. This magnet now sits in my home on my microwave and serves as a reminder to my wife and I every single morning that we ought to ask our children while they can still say, I know, I know, I know. The reality of it is we laugh. But this idea of do I know everything was something of great importance to James. Because the question, what are we doing if we're not getting our wisdom from the Lord, was such a big deal that right after he finished talking about teachers that ought to be really careful before they open their mouths because the tongue can derail everything, now goes on to say, who among you is wise? So with some level of fear and trepidation, but with great confidence that God speaks and will speak and will fill us with his spirit, let's turn to James chapter 3. Looking at verses 13 through 18, stand together with me if you would so we can hear and receive the word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial 
and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, if we were asked we wouldn't necessarily call ourselves know-it-alls. But Lord, today, in these few moments that we have together, by your Spirit, give us a chance to see our own hearts and the ways in which we're functionally living as know-it-alls. And don't show us that to shame us and don't show us that to crush us. Show us that to save us so that we would see Jesus as our only help and run to him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Be seated. So we've said that To understand the book of James, you need to take off your Pauline lens. You need to take off this idea that he's trying to define a lot of terms for you. James presumes that you get the terms, that you get the gospel, that you understand that you had nothing apart from Jesus and Jesus has given you everything. And because those things are true, what James is now doing is unpacking, therefore, what should that look like here and now and in the present? One author put it this way, James is the dividing line between profession of faith and possession of faith. It's the difference between what do you say versus what do you do. We're seeing described the reflection that we should see in the mirror if we hold ourselves and our community up. This is what God's people should look and sound and act like. So he said some pretty strong words, and and the reality of it is, Chapters three and four are really the, the, the crux of the argument that James is building. Last week, we were challenged to hear about the fact that um, the reason that the tongue can get you in so much trouble is not because you just need to get a little bit of a tighter grip on what you say but it's because in your heart of hearts, what's driving your tongue is disordered desire. We don't need better control of our speech. We need better desire that will drive what we say. So now James is going and looking at us and saying, okay, how many of you would say to be wise? 
And so really what we again see is this kind of recurring argument, this recurring um, dialogue that James has, rhetorically speaking, in his writing. He's going to ask a question, he's going to tell you what it isn't, and he's going to try and show you what it is. And so that's really going to be the, um, the, the train of thought that we'll follow this morning. We're going to look at what wisdom is, we're going to look at examples of failed earthly wisdom, we're going to look at examples of what it is to be uh, filled with the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of Jesus. When we first ask the question, um, what, is, what is wisdom, um, we need to give ourselves a little bit of space to try and define some things. Because when we think about wisdom, when we think about wise sayings, they really are just that. They're, they're wise sayings, at least as we would understand them in the world, you know, um, Ben Franklin had a lot of wise sayings. Uh, it seems like everything gets ascribed to Albert Einstein these days. He may have said half of them. Um, wise sayings, though, are things that go, huh, that's really interesting. And then you kind of go on about your day. And even to say then that James is the New Testament book of wisdom, like a New Testament book of Proverbs, we don't really know what to do with Proverbs. And so we just sort of pick and choose. And some of the stuff that James says is, well, I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to understand. The Bible, um, when the Bible talks about wisdom, the first thing that we need to understand is that the Bible nowhere places much value on knowledge that remains merely cerebral, merely in your head, right? In the Bible, nothing is known until it reshapes our life. Nothing is known until it reshapes our life. And what James is saying here, when he asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What James is saying is this. There is a God-given wisdom, which is, by the way, not innate to you. What I mean by that is it is not as if there is this, there is this wisdom that just lays dormant, and then one day you can sort of tap it, access it, and you're good now. There is, in fact, a God-ordained wisdom, but it is not innate in you. It, you do not, in yourself, have the capacity to get the type of wisdom that James is asking you if you have here. So therefore, it is our personal responsibility to seek this wisdom and to put it at the center of our beings and to live by it. So what is wisdom? If we were to put together a biblical picture of what wisdom is, how would you describe it? We do this all the time when we talk about recipes that we make or when we talk about um, things that we do. We talk about the steps or the ingredients that go in. I think in this case that we can, we can make a strong case, and there's probably other things that we could add to the list, but I would say there are at least four core ingredients to when we talk about what makes up wisdom, what it entails, what it consists of. There are four main ingredients that go into wisdom. And the first one is this. It's dependence. Dependence. 
The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that um, it is uh, the fear of the Lord that, that grants us wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That verse there, the, the, the fear of the Lord is what um, gives us wisdom, um, seems to run afoul of what the Apostle John says in 1 John when he says, perfect love casts out fear. So how can the fear of the Lord be the beginning of wisdom and perfect love casts out fear? That doesn't seem to make sense. Here in Proverbs, what he's talking about is reverence, dependence. You are God and I am not. Beloved, if there's nothing else that you get today, would that be the, very, the, the most essential thing that you take home is that he is God and you are not and you are a dependent person whether you have advanced training, lots of degrees, lots of life experience, or are just starting out, it doesn't matter. We are dependent people. And the way that wisdom gets upended is when you get out of that position of dependence and begin thinking that there are some things in life that you can solve on your own. So the first component is dependence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second component that I would add to the mixture of what wisdom is is conversion. Now, this is, again, where biblical wisdom, wisdom from God, this is different than just good rules of life to live by. When we talk about the type of wisdom that produces godly character, it is predicated. It is based on, I am dependent, I have nothing, and then conversion, Jesus has done everything for me. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We are dependent. We have nothing apart. We have nothing in ourselves to add to the equation. We have nothing good to give, and we are completely needy on what God has done for us and in us and through us through Jesus. So second component, conversion. Third component, um, the scriptures. In Psalm 119, just meditate on Psalm 119 uh, sometime when you have uh, a couple months The psalmist loves the word of God. In Psalm 119, 97 through 100, he says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You com- your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, For I keep your precepts. If you want to know what wisdom looks like, it's because you're a dependent person. You have nothing in yourself to add to the equation. You needed something to be done for you in and through Jesus Christ. And now you are are one who is saturated in the word of God. It is shaping you. It is changing you. It is molding you. The last thing that I would say goes into the uh, kind of this, this description of what biblical wisdom is, is prayer. James has already said it in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
It is a life that is lived in dependence, in prayer. One of the things that our elders have been talking about here is what would it look like for us to really create a culture of prayer at Metrocrest? And what I don't mean is that we don't pray. We do, and praise God that we do. And what I don't mean is that it doesn't matter that we pray for the things, um, whether people are sick or infirm or being persecuted or in need of, of employment or in some sort of acute crisis. Those are all incredibly important things. And we, with honor and, and humility and dignity, bring those things and request before the Lord. But what we're asking about is what does it look like for us to see that we are in great need? That apart from God, none of this that we're doing can be done. None of this is possible. None of this is actually going to happen. If we took prayer out of the mix, if we took our daily moment-by-moment communion with the Lord and, and pleading with him and, and bringing our dependence to him, if all of that left, what would we be left with? You see, to say that you have wisdom And to have prayer not be a vital part of that mixture, that gets into what James is going to challenge you with in just a moment. It is not wisdom from above. Because then it's you operating as if with my smarts and my skills and our collective abilities, we can solve this together. And James says that, Watch out. Watch out. That's not, that's not wisdom that comes from God. That is not wisdom that comes from God. So I would say that um, a, an understanding that we are dependent, that we, are, that we live in constant dependence on God because we, uh, we are a, a needy people, the fact that we need what Jesus and only what Jesus can do for us and has done for us to be a part of our lives, that we need to be saturated in the scriptures and that we need to be constantly abiding in prayer. This is what uh, gives us the, um, this is what gives us the circumstances, the atmosphere, the, um, the receptivity for God to do what only God can do which is to give us his wisdom. Now, the question for us is, um, if, 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 if these things are not forming the, the daily infusion, that your daily intake into your life, like you, you drink water or you take in food, if these things, if these realities are not the things that are coming and, and, and being uh, a daily source of strength and nourishment for you, then the other question that we need to answer then is what is in its place? We are constantly being formed by something, okay? I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I'll reiterate it now. We are, we are constantly being formed by something. Things all around us are telling us who we should love and who we should hate, who we should support and who we should not. And if it's not the word of God, if it's not the spirit of God, if it's not, if it's not um, our fellowship with God, then what is? 
what is giving you your sense, your understanding of the world, and giving you, um, and giving you your, your pattern for how you operate? Because James says this in his, at the end of his rhetorical question. He says that meekness is the moral character of wisdom. So he asks the question, who is wise? It's a rhetorical question. But then he answers it for you. He says, by his fruits... So by what we can see, by what we can experience, by his fruit, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So then he goes on and he gives you some examples. He gives you some examples of earthly wisdom in verses 14 through 16. Look here. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So another way of translating bitter jealousy is envy. Remember a little while ago, we did a series in the seven deadly sins, and we said that uh, one, of the, uh, one of the sins is envy. And we described it maybe something like this. Envy wants to grasp rather than to give. It's the opposite of care for the needy. It sees only its own needs and desires. Envy and bitter jealousy thinks that others should take care of themselves. So James says, if you don't have the wisdom of heaven operating in your life, this is what it's going to look like. If you're looking for a diagnosis, if you're looking for a reflection, this is what you are going to see. You are going to see bitter jealousy, envy show up in your life. You're going to see selfish ambition. You're going to use power over people for personal gain. Whatever it is. Could be positions of power. Could be other ways we get power. We use emotional leverage to get power over people. We manipulate. We pitch fits. We get angry. We use our words in unkind ways. It's all all rooted in selfish ambition. This is setting us up for what we're going to talk about next week in James 4.1, where he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? At the end of the day, what causes us to envy others and what causes us to get what we want is because we are going to use power over other people in order to make sure that our needs are met, to make sure that our status is secure. So James describes in verse 15 this reflection, this this picture that we're seeing in the mirror. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. If you're saying that you're a Christian, but what you're you're functionally living like, what the the day in and day out of your life looks like is this. He says, let's be clear about one thing. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He says, it's earthly. The world is its source and its bounds. It's unspiritual. It's the opposite of what's coming from a dependent heart looking to Jesus and Jesus alone through the word of God and through fellowship through the spirit of God. It's the opposite of that. It's not coming from those things. It's unspiritual. It's coming from within you. And then James says, James gives you a return address if you want to know where that came from. He says it's demonic. I had a professor in seminary by the name of Steve Brown. 
it would say, it came down from the pit of hell itself and it smells like smoke. He said it about three octaves lower. He smoked a pipe. He had a really deep voice. I can't do it. Um, That's incredibly strong language, isn't it? I mean, that's not the language of you're just making some bad decisions. Remember, James is black and white. There is no middle ground with him. So if you're operating out of a place of bitter jealousy, out of envy, where through selfish ambition you are seeking to get your, um, your whatever, any way you want through whomever you need to use, James says, guess what? That's not the wisdom that comes from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. James calls the way of life marked by envy and ambition a kind of wisdom, if you could call it that, because envy and ambition do have a certain logic to them, even if they are ultimately unspiritual and demonic. Here's how the logic runs. I have to look out for my own interests. If I don't, no one else will. Therefore, I must get what I deserve. And we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, we we look around and we see people that are prettier than us, that are thinner than us, that are more well-off than us, that have better jobs, more put-together families, are able to manage their stresses and anxieties, and we look at all of them, and rather than rejoicing that they are who they are and we are who we are, what we do instead is we seethe on the inside. Say it's not fair that they always keep a neat and tidy house, that they always don't yell at their kids before breakfast. It's not fair. I don't like them. I hate them. I want what they want. I want what they have. So we look around, we see people at work, right? We see people that were hired at the same time that we were, that seem to be right on par with who we are, and yet they get promoted and you don't. Someone else gets a raise and you didn't. You say, I deserve more. I deserve what they have. I'm going to get it. Dan Doriani says, it's truly the wisdom of the world to boast. I will take care of myself. I will get what I want. Listen, if there is no God, such thinking does have a veneer of wisdom. But James says, when, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every type of evil practice, every type of vile practice. See, it's not just disobedience that we're talking about here. It's not just you made a couple of bad decisions. What's going on at the core is not just I'm not being as good a Christian as I ought to be. What's going on here is you're living in, the, in, in disbelief. You're living as if there is no God. Okay, so not too long after I became a Christian, I had a part-time job. I was working 
for a little bookstore in a mall that was dying. So we didn't have a lot of customers. And so I had a lot of time to talk to my coworkers. And this was the first time that I was introduced to atheist philosophers. I had no idea that this was such a prevalent thing and that people my age read atheist philosophers. But there is someone that's sitting right there next to me on the stool behind the checkout counter who had read Ayn Rand. And starts throwing the zingers. Can God create a rock that he can't lift? I don't know. We're here to sell books. And so I made it my mission. I was like, okay, I'm going to find all the apologetics books I can. Someone told me about Josh McDowell. I went out and bought books by Josh McDowell and Evidence That Demands a Verdict and everything else because I was going to learn how to argue atheists into belief. I wasn't terribly successful. The other problem is that I became convinced that atheism was all out there. Years and years later, what I would find out is that the remnants of atheism live right here. Because disobedience is really a sign of disbelief. I'm living as if there is no God. I'm living as if he doesn't exist. And I'm in it all by myself. And I have to take care of myself. And the problem is that's not an intellectual argument at its core. That's not a head issue. That's a heart issue. And so James says, what do we do? What do you do? Well, he goes on and he describes what, um, what wisdom is that is uh, from the Lord. He says, for, their, for where their, um, the wisdom from above is first pure, verse 17, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Um, so how do we see the evidences that we have this type of wisdom at work in us? If, there's, uh, if we've kind of uh, seen this environment created in us where we're dependent, where we've been converted, where we're saturating ourselves in the scriptures and we're in daily and constant prayer with the Lord, what it looks like then for us to have uh, the wisdom that is from above is something like this. We are a peaceable people. This contrasts with the social discord caused by jealousy and selfish ambition and envy. True wisdom, Proverbs 3.17 says, leads to peace. It also means that we are, uh, we're gentle. Again, you contrast this with worldly wisdom. It means um, to be reasonable or fair-minded. The gentle are willing to yield, not quick to demand. Open to reason, ready to obey, willing to get along with others, willing to defer. Do you know how often in my life I'm willing to defer? Don't answer that. Out of that flows mercy and good fruits. Mercy is the general term for acts of undeserved kindness. Jesus both showed it and commanded it. And good fruits is the consequences of these deeds of mercy. This next word, impartial, it only occurs once in the New Testament and it's here. Um, It's better translated unwavering. 
Um, and it pairs well with the next word, sincere, unwavering and sincere. The effect of all of these things taken together is, the, is, is peace and righteousness for the family of God. Look, look at verse 18. When all this is happening, James says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's getting ready to go back and uh, tap into those longings that we have next week when he goes, why is it that you can't get that? Back again, because we are a people of disordered desire and divided loves. So let me ask you this. How many of you show of hands? I'm, I'm not doing that to you. Don't worry. I'm not actually asking you to show your hands. How many of you really just hate how deeply jealous you get of other people? Whether it's what they look like or what they, um, what they act like or what they have or what you don't have. When you look around in a culture of one-upsmanship and all you can think about is what's lacking in your life. How many of you don't like that about yourself? How many of you don't like the ugly that rises up inside of you and measures your worth in terms of your lack and others' gain? Many of us, I know, struggle with it and find it impossible to break free. We can't stop ourselves from being envious and going into bitter jealousy. Listen, you can't stop yourself by simply commanding yourself to just get it together. Envy goes deeper because it's not a matter of, of mere it's not a matter of mere disobedience. It's a matter of disbelief. Envy goes to the heart, and only the truth of the gospel is what helps us to be free from it. Listen, when I'm living in unbelief of the gospel, when I'm focusing not on what Jesus has done for me and daily provides for me, but instead looking at the world around me and evaluating myself and others, both in what they have and what I lack, I'm prone to all sorts of jealousy and envy. Again, Dan Doriani says that jealousy is the logical consequence of godlessness. If there is no God, he says, then we should care for ourselves by grasping whatever we can, however we can. We aren't surprised when the world does this, but when Christians do this, it's because they have failed to remember. It's they, they have failed to see their status as beloved children of God. Friends, listen, it is belief in the gospel. It's belief in the good news of Jesus Christ in remembering who Jesus is and what he has done that we find our hope. Faith brings us a wisdom and a gentleness that lets us say, God has given me the talents that I have, whether great or small. He has given me my place in life, whether prominent or obscure. He's given me my family. He's given me my vocation. He's given me all of my flaws and all of my gifts. All of these things are from him and they are not by accident. They are not because you somehow screwed up or because God was somehow asleep at the wheel. Whatever my lot, I know that God will bless me. 
Because of that, I can serve him faithfully. See, only those things, only those things come by faith. You can't gin those things up inside of you. You can't go power of positive thinking and work your way out of it yourself. You don't need a better script. You need a savior. It's the gospel that liberates us um, to pursue godly aspiration that's free of envy. It's the gospel that gives us peace and that allows us to sow peace in our community. It's the gospel that shows us that we are living in light of wisdom from above. Jesus isn't trying to crush you. He was crushed for you. Jesus, by his spirit, is trying to change you. By saying, look at me. Look how much I love you. Jesus didn't come to pursue you, and only then God would love you. Jesus came to pursue you because God loved you. And so if you're a mess, if you're full of bitter jealousy, full of selfish ambition, full of measuring yourself by what you lack and by what others have, good. Bring your mess to Jesus and let him change you. Own it all. Let him own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel thought and every rebel power. Beloved, listen. If you look at the reflection in the mirror and all you see is a bunch of stuff that doesn't look like Jesus, come to him and ask for help. Come to him and ask for help and say, I don't want to be this anymore. By your spirit, by your power, through your word and through your people, change me. And he will. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Try him and see. Try him and see what happens. I promise you that what you'll see is something that doesn't look at all like what you're capable of and looks only like what he can do.